This is Pod Populi, podcast for the people. Hi, my name is Dr. Sarah Adams. I am a board-certified pediatrician, but I'm not your pediatrician. Feel free to use my podcast as helpful information, but in no way do I intend my podcast to replace the advice of your physician. Your physician knows you and is in the best position to provide medical advice. Hello, and welcome to Growing Up with Dr. Sarah. I have the honor as a podcast host to also be on other podcasts as a guest. And so today, you're going to get a chance to listen to a recording of a podcast I did with Dr. Dean Mitchell, and he is the host of The Smartest Doctor in the Room. So I hope you'll enjoy, and remember... Let's grow up together. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Where can you get the best medical information anytime and anywhere? I hope right here on The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. Every child's first encounter with a doctor is their pediatrician. I don't think the medical community at large appreciates how important this first impression of our profession really is. And as you know, the saying goes, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. I remember my pediatrician sort of vaguely, but yet quite sharply as well. His name was Dr. Zarki. I believe he was in his 50s when I was very young, and he looked like your classic doctor from the 1960s. He had a crew-cut haircut, he had a stark white shirt and a dark tie, and he wore a long white coat when he came into the room. He practiced out of his house, as many pediatricians and family uh, family doctors did back then. He also quite literally saved my life. Uh, As an infant, I was only a few months old, I had a febrile seizure as an And it was on a Saturday night, of course, and my father and my mother in a panic drove me frantically to his house because they knew he'd be there, hopefully. It's funny, he was dressed, my parents described, in a tuxedo. He was getting ready to go out to an event with his wife. And he literally dropped everything, went, took me into his exam room, started working to resuscitate me, and then drove my parents and me to the hospital where I I had to stay for several days until I recovered. My parents revered Dr. Zarki, and I think those were truly the days that the public had such respect for physicians, and it was very well deserved. Today, most children's first experience going to a pediatrician involves getting shots or vaccinations. Not exactly the best way to be introduced to somebody that's going to be caring for you for potentially the next 18 years. My guest today, Dr. Sarah Adams, is a pediatrician in Akron, Ohio. She's also a fellow podcaster, like I am, with Pod Populi, and her show is called Growing Up with Dr. Sarah. I've listened to several uh, episodes, and I get the feeling she's not your average pediatrician. She really cares deeply uh, about her young patients, not just their physical health, but their mental well-being as well, and I think the relationship with their parents. She takes on issues in her podcast that bridge that gap between what a doctor typically does in an office visit and what a really good doctor does outside of those visits. 
Dr. Adams is an associate professor at Northeastern Ohio College of Medicine and is on staff at Akron's Children's Hospital. So it's my pleasure to welcome a fellow physician, podcaster, Dr. Sarah Adams. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's interesting you you were explaining your experience as a child. I remember my pediatrician actually coming to my home when I had chickenpox, which thankfully due to vaccinations we hardly see anymore, but that was the image that went through my mind while you were uh sharing your story. Yeah, they did make house calls. I remember my pediatrician too, you know, and it's so funny. Patients always ask these days, well, why can't the doctor come to my house? You know, and, uh, you know, there's pros and cons of all of that. Uh, but I, I think the doctors in those times too, it was, I guess, pretty fascinating for them to get to people's homes and see what was going on inside the home. Uh, there's some really good stories written. Um, I think John O'Hara, uh, a famous writer, because I studied literature in college, uh, his dad was a doctor in rural Pennsylvania, and he wrote some stories. I think one of them was called Doctor's Son, where he went on uh, house calls with his doctor. And uh, it was like during like sometimes like these various epidemics like we have now and uh you know how his father with very limited medication but went there to basically heal soothe and you know just be uh you know a positive presence in these people's lives so you bring up such an important point though too and something that we can get into later when we talk about practice in general but that is really getting to know the family at a, a completely different level and i think that improves patient care too. It does. I agree with you. So let's start with this. I love asking. It's one of the fun things that I get to do. I love asking background questions on all the different physicians that I interview. And so how did you decide on pediatrics? Um, and I'll tell you why I didn't go into pediatrics initially, even though I take care of pediatrics. <laughs> I do take care of pediatric patients now in my practice, especially the allergy component. And I deal out with food allergies and, and stuff. Oh, yeah. But how did you decide on pediatrics? Well, it's kind of, I I have a funny story with that. Mm. And that is that I actually went to med school thinking I was going to be an OBGYN. And it was my first third year rotation when we actually started doing our clinicals. And I realized right away that it wasn't what I wanted to do. And I was devastated because I thought, oh, no, now what am I going to do? And so I ended up being one of those students that no matter what the clinical rotation was, that's what I was going to be. Yeah, we all go through that a little bit, right? Well, we we kind of go through it both ways, either like, wow, I could really see myself doing this. And the other end, I could never see myself doing this, you know, yeah. I loved everything. And it, uh, I, so I tell people I went into pediatrics because it was my last clinical rotation. (laughs) Okay, so right. It's like the last thing that came into, you came across your, your, your purview. So that's interesting. So that, that's, that's really one of the reasons why, or was there anything deeper than that or? No, for sure. There was, yeah, I yeah. think that what I loved about it, other than, you know, a lot of pediatricians will say, well, I love working with kids, et yeah, cetera. But right, what I really loved was working with parents, which is a, one of the reasons why some people don't go. Oh, no, a lot of the pediatricians, that's the thing they'll say. Like, oh, I love the kids, but the parents, they got to go. You know, <laughs> And it's such no. an integral part of that visit. I mean, you are, you really have two patients in the room all the time, mm-hmm. for, you know, mm-hmm. for the most part. I'll, I'll yes. tell you something funny about me when I, um, you know, because medicine, the reason I ask this question to so many of the doctors that I'm fascinated by, because, you know, really going into medicine 
is it's just such a wide variety of what you could choose. I mean, it could, be, yeah. it could just totally change your career path. And I'll tell you the funny thing for me, I actually was in a very good pediatric ward in my medical school, which I really enjoyed. The, the professors were excellent. But I'll never forget that, like, being at the bedside, and I was really intimidated by the mothers. And why? You know, at that point, I wasn't a parent. So that's, that's another little angle I'll mention after, too. I think it's changed, you know, the way I practice. But, you know, again, as a young 22-year-old, 23-year-old, I felt the mothers knew their children much better than I did. I mean, I mean, medically. I mean, they would say, I can look at my child and he doesn't look right. And I'm like, what are they talking about? You know, and uh, so I said, how could I go into a field where the patient's parents going to be, you know, more comfortable, you know, than I am? And, and obviously that changed a little bit over time. And it definitely changed after I became a parent. You know, I always say that oh, yeah. that's a, it's a nice added bonus because, I, as I said, I take care of pediatric patients and I love taking care of them. Because, you know, again, I, in my, the allergy part of my practice, it's a mix of adults and children and the kids are just so fascinating. You, you know, they, they are so wired in when they come in. And, uh, and as you know, too, they're looking, am I getting a shot today? You know, and I have to try to put them at ease right away. And they're so blunt in, uh, you know, it, you know, in, in their questions. And, um, so I, anyway, I find it a lot of fun taking care of them, but I know that some pediatricians, you know, it becomes a little bit of a grind, I guess, because of insurance and this, and they're seeing a lot of kids and there's a lot of administrative stuff to do and a lot of forms to fill out. It starts to sometimes take away from the joy of just being in the room with the kids. So, um, okay. So I want to move on to something, which is going to, we're going to stay a little bit on the practice part. You know, again, in your career right now, what is a typical day for you at work? I'm just curious, you know, are you in mainly in your private office are you in a group? Are you solo? Do you make hospital rounds? You know, and, and how do you do this whole balance thing? So it's interesting because I've been in practice for 26 years oh, wow. and so much has changed. When I first started practicing, I was on staff at two different hospitals and my morning would start with rounding at either One was a community-based hospital, which basically the work I did there was in the nursery. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, my affiliation with a children's hospital in which I would see patients that were sick and inpatient. And then go to my, you know, clinical practice. And, and then I started off in practice with two children. So I even had a family by the time that I actually started. Wow. And so it, it was amazing when I look back and think about how that had to work and, and with balance. And my husband's not in medicine, and that may or may not have helped. I, I think in general, we made it work. But then when we were on call, this community-based hospital, for the first 20 years of my practice, if there was a problem with the baby, because they didn't have hospitalists or neonatologists, right. Right. we went in. Oh, well, and right. I I did that for the first 20 years. So in the middle of the night, which was really unusual today, I would get up and go to, go to the hospital and I could be there for hours. Were you in a group or still, or were you by yourself? I can so, cause so many teachers, I don't know anyone that's in a solo pediatric practice. No, right off the bat, I actually was hired out of residency 
by this community-based hospital. Okay. And so I was part of a practice. There was just two of us. And the reason we were recruited there was because at the time, the whole county, we were the, there was four pediatricians in the whole county, very rural. And it, and they were all over 60. So this was right around the time, you know, about 25, 26 years ago, where hospitals were starting to create these group practices. And I wasn't really sure if that was something I wanted to do. And I looked at both options, but I think being a mom Mm. and um, starting it, it really looked favorable to me because I didn't have to worry about insurance and billing and hiring staff. Yeah. And to this day, now I work for a different hospital, but in my whole career, I've, I've always worked at a hospital based program and that practice we started two years or 26 years ago with just two docs has now grown into three different locations and there's six doctors. So it's really exciting to see how that's grown to serve a community that was in so much need. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I think for so long, you know, doctors were our own worst enemy. Um, I mean, look, practice evolved out of mainly independent practices. Doctors are fairly, or at the time, at least fairly independent minded in general. That's why they wanted to go into medicine. They wanted to not have, you know, to have bosses, quote, bosses over them, et cetera, et cetera. But, and even my, my doctor, like Dr. Zarki, he finally, you know, when he was probably in his 50s or 60s, took in his new associate, who I now know is like 90 years old, still alive, and I think practicing a little bit. Um, but medicine's changed so dramatically between managed care and obviously all the administrative stuff. I mean, it's really overwhelming. You'd have to be super duper uh, Superman or Superwoman to do it, to be able to round, do your patient practice, you know, in the office hours and then at night. I mean, it's really... It's untenable. Um, so, I, and I think this next generation of doctors are really only knowing what you started. You know, you really kind of had a, um, a head start, let's say, compared to a lot of them that, hey, look, working groups, it's actually very good too. You get to bounce ideas off. I, I, you know, I'm fortunate, I'm in practice with my wife for 30 years. And over the years, we really bounced a lot of ideas around. And okay. and I have to say, with my podcast, I've really, I, I tell patients, I said, this has been the greatest, you know, advanced medical training I've ever had because I get to interview doctors in all specialties. I prepare a lot before the, the podcast mm-hmm. and uh, get to ask the questions that I want to know, even personally, to, to be better at what I do. So let me ask you this, too. Um, as a pediatrician. And this is, this is obviously, I think, I, I sometimes the question is like, what's the most difficult part of your job? Is it telling a parent a child of yours is very sick? Is it calming down the parent that's a little bit of an over worrier? Um, and how do you keep a fresh approach on an everyday basis based on a lot of things are kind of routine to what you're doing? You know, it's true. It's funny because I really enjoyed my residency and I remember going into practice and when I had decided I was going to do primary care, because I seriously considered, you know, becoming a specialist Mm -hmm. and then changed my mind. I thought, is this going to be boring? Am I going to be bored? But I will say it's definitely not been boring. Every day has been different, but I think the most challenging aspect is 
really getting to know, and this kind of goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning, is really getting to know the family's story and time. I mean, I, the first thing that comes to mind when I think about challenges is really time. Because over the years, our time with patients has really shrunk, which is what motivated me to start the podcast in the first place. Right. And that was to talk about things that we just don't get time to talk about because the other things that are really important, you know, take priority. So I think it's really understanding when you go from room to room, the needs of the family. And the other day I spent some time, it was a four-year-old visit, well visit. I think majority of the time I spent was literally listening to the mother with a box of Kleenexes mm. and mm. the child, you know, luckily she was amusing herself. So it worked they out. All have, they all have the iPad or so their phone, <laughs> right? Hasn't that changed a little bit before you used to have crayons and a lot of paper and magic markers. Now well, they come in with their iPad and they're okay. <laughs> yes. Yes. Sometimes I'll actually walk in and uh, especially if I know the family and I know how possibly interruptive the, ch- the child could be when we're talking, yeah. I will, um, I will, they'll, they'll immediately be like, okay, shut that off, shut that off. And for some kids, yes, I think that that is important to shut that off. And I really work hard to engage the kids. And that's why I was talking about that. I talk about small talk before big talk is one of the things that I do, because I don't ever want to just talk to the parent. And all of a sudden, the patient really is just sitting yeah, there. They're listening. a bystander, right. Or they're usually sleeping on, if, you, if they're comfortable, they're sleeping on your exam table. If they're uncomfortable, they're hedging by the door, you know, seeing, trying to, trying to escape. Do yeah. Especially that, adolescents. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Do you think you have like a slight advantage and we won't, you know, tw- say this to the, you know, to your male colleagues, but being a female pediatrician and a mom yourself, do you think that gives you a little bit of an edge? You know, it, it's interesting. I mean, not just that question, but being a, being a parent in general, you know, people have said, does that give you edge? And I know lots of uh, male pediatricians as well as pediatricians that have no children. And so today I'm in a practice of seven and uh, in, in the small community that I live in here in Hudson, Ohio. So it's a little bit different demographic and we, and it is a, a great combination of Physicians with no kids. Um, we have two males in our practice. Mm-hmm. So I've had the opportunity to really practice alongside, um, you know, those two examples. And I really don't think there's a difference. Now, maybe in the way that we think and empathize, that's a possibility mm-hmm. because I find myself in really incorporating my my real life experiences Absolutely. with my kids sure. in, into my practice. Yeah. And, um, and I think that helps me, yeah. but that's not for everybody. And I, and I think you've realized this too, in your practice that people will navigate or veer towards physicians that they feel comfortable. Absolutely. With. Yeah, absolutely. So my, yeah. My patients come in and ask, you know, Oh, how, how, how are your sons? Because they mm-hmm. know right. others don't really want to, yeah. Want to know. Right. <laughs> so. yeah. How has COVID-19 affected your practice and maybe the way you practice? Have you had to make any kind of dramatic changes? Are you doing telemedicine with parents? You know, um, what's your 
How's this uh, affected your practice? There's that is such a big question. I mean, there's so many ways. And as you know, COVID-19 does affect children a little bit differently, although it's, you know, unfortunately, people have the view, especially if we're talking about the vaccine, for example, that, well, if they don't get as sick, then so-and-so, and there are kids even today that are still being hospitalized week after weeks. But in the beginning, what was concerning for me is access because all of a sudden we were not seeing kids that were over three years of age and um, in our practice because of you know the isolation and the lockdown etc and what fallout we're seeing now is that there are less kids who are fully vaccinated because they missed their early on you know Mm. those ages. Oh, right, right. Everybody's staying. Yeah. Yeah. So that's probably one of the biggest changes uh, that I have seen. And the other change is just socially, because you really get to know, I mean, politics never came in to play in my practice prior to this. It was Mm. always, I look at the family and when I work with patients as we're a team, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm here to teach you and you are the ones that, you know, are going to make the decision of what is most important for your family. Because like you said, they really do most know their children better than I do. But now all of a sudden you're getting, well, I don't want this vaccine because of this, or I don't want to do the test because of this. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong or that I'm judging it at all, but it's a whole new yeah, it's really right. You have thing to, to think about right, and then right, and people it becomes political, it becomes a lot of things, and then you're you're walking that tightrope. You know, the other thing I kept on thinking about too, because uh, uh, early in my career, uh, I shared office space, like we were like right down the hall from a very large pediatric practice, and I know even when I took my sons when they were little to that practice and another practice in New York City when we were living there. Pediatric practices tend to be very large waiting rooms. They tended to have a lot of kids, you know, because the kids were being, you know, with a lot of sick kids and they were being seen, you know, fairly rapidly, a lot of exam rooms. And there was always a play area. How <laughs> did like COVID change all that? Did you have to kind of really tightly schedule? Like I know I've had to do it in my own office where we only had a certain amount of people in the office, even though today 50% of my practice, I'm doing Zooms. Um, but has that, did that change again, the way you had to schedule patients, you know, even well checkups and vaccinations saying, okay, you know, only a certain amount of people in the waiting room, you know, because of COVID. I mean, you know, you know, for the while with COVID, you know, they would rope off the chairs, you know, good luck doing mm-hmm. that with kids, right? They don't have somebody next to one another. Like how did that work? Yeah, they did that in the waiting room, but we incorporated a mobile check-in. So that, I think, really helped a lot. We did not have a lot of patients in our our waiting room. So we had mobile check-in. I never did virtual visits before this. Mm -hmm. I can't say that in my practice, I'm still doing a lot. I only have maybe one or two virtual visits a week. And, And of course, right in the midst of it, there, I might have been able to say maybe five a week, but our practice is still in, you know, and even was then as things were opening up in person. But what was interesting, and this is something to think about, and is that we could only allow one parent 
in the beginning. Right, right. And that was a huge inconvenience for some families, especially if, and you were only allowed to bring your patient. You know, a lot of times, even today, a, a mom will come in with all for her kids, oh, even boy. though only one is being seen. Oh, wow. So the other two or three would be in the waiting room or in the car or something. What would that be? <laughs> I mean, I, yes. I mean, parents had to figure it out. That's a stress. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, yeah. you bring up a great point. I mean, parents typically, they have a couple of kids, you know, it's not like everybody has someone who can babysit, you know, no. and so they're have one, get, one child in their arm, another one running around you know, that's slight chaos there. And, you know, to, to get what has to get done, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I hope my administrators aren't listening, but I was, you know, especially only when I knew the family really well, I would, you know, sneak them in or something in, in very, very rare situations. But, you know, again, you know, we had to meet the family where they were, otherwise the kids, they wouldn't come and we really wanted to get them in. Yeah. But I would say one of the biggest fallouts from COVID-19 um, and pediatrics is the emotional part of it. And I get chills just thinking about it. But five years ago, and it's it was starting an uptick even before then, and this just exacerbated it. Because five years ago, if you would have asked me, oh, do you prescribe antidepressants or medications? And I would have said, no, I usually refer out. But because of access and because of the increase of need, I found myself doing as much education as I could, thankfully to Zoom, and found myself, I told my husband one day, I said, I feel like I'm more of a pediatric psychiatrist than I am a general pediatrician, but it was just I had to meet the needs of it's the family. Yeah, the I children. think it's a huge need that had, you know, that the pediatricians play such an important or can play such an important role, which kind of is a nice segue into why did you decide to start a podcast? And, and that is exactly it. But more importantly, one of my, how do I say this? So I always run behind and I know in general, there's a stereotype about, um, uh, doctors running behind, but right, making the patients wait, even though you're trying to spend time and clarify issues, right. it's not like you're sitting there sipping coffee and uh, reading the newspaper, right? <laughs> no, and uh, and I love to talk, and so I and I love to teach. Yeah. I really think I went into medicine because I want to teach. I like to teach and preventative medicine specifically, and mental health, and mm-hmm. so. I found myself I found myself really running behind and then of course that doesn't work when you're talking about patient satisfaction and getting right. enough patients in and getting right. out on time it affects so many people and so I wanted to do the podcast to really talk about like I said the things that I just don't have time to do in my practice and mm-hmm. hopefully they're relevant and it really goes from the gamut from my I don't know if you looked at the list but I'll talk about the color of baby poop. <laughs> and then the next oh, one is see, yeah. actually talking with a pediatric psychiatrist who's really deep into how to help kids with anxiety. So it, it's all over the place. But yeah, yeah, yeah that's me- a great point. You know, I, what I sometimes used to find in the practice, you know, because again, you know, and I, again, there's, you know, in my practice, I would, I see probably about 10 or 12 
maybe 14 people a day and you're probably seeing more, but I would find that sometimes there was something really important that would be coming up. And I was like, gosh, I wish a hundred of my patients, 500 of my patients, anybody that I know I could share this with. And that's what I found the podcast, like a medium for that to, you know, to get the word out there. Like you don't even have to be my patient to say, look, I think if you do this, this is just, you know, I've talked to enough people or I read this, this, you should, this should be common knowledge not a big secret. So, um. Absolutely. Yesterday I recorded a podcast on when do you buy your child a cell phone? You know what? Mm. And it's, it's such a common question, but I think because there's only so much time to talk, it's, it's almost like, you know, anticipatory guidance is such a big part of being a doctor and that seems to get shoved way down when there's so many other things to address when they're actually in person. Okay. I'm going to ask you about a couple of topics that I, I have seen. I think that you discussed uh, things that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm curious because I, even the pediatric patients I'm seeing or the, even the teenagers I'm seeing, what are your thoughts on certain medical issues that didn't seem to be as prevalent when I was growing up in the seventies, like ADHD overdiagnosed, overtreated, What's your thoughts? That's a, yeah, that's a great question. And you're absolutely right. It, you know, there, there's always that question, like, has it always been around and we just weren't aware or is this something that's new? And in the medical field and even in the communities, people are like wondering, is this, is this real? Like, even is it a real diagnosis? Well, I think it's real, but you know, but is it, um, is, are we too quick to medicate kids you know instead of like helping them i mean you know, you know it's interesting it's like for example even michael phelps i mean he's he's talked about this you know the olympic swimmer champion you know that he had uh some form of add adhd and uh i don't remember if they were medicating him in school and you know, he also his parents were going through a divorce so there was a lot of stress in the home but um you know like swimming was his outlet and, you know, so a lot of times, too, it's sometimes funny, like not, not everybody. See, this is interesting, which I would think as a pediatrician, you really see. And I, I, you know, I, it's very frustrating because so many kids are not don't fit into that, that school mode. And if you don't mm-hmm. fit into being a student, you know, which not everybody is made for, your life is pretty tough for about the first 18 years of your life. Right. Because, Absolutely. Right. Because it's not like they say, oh, this is a creative kid. You know, he, he doesn't sit well. He should be out, you know. I mean, if he was in the 1920s or 30s, he'd be on a farm somewhere, you know, doing farming, physical work. You know, mm-hmm. he's not meant to be sitting down, just taking notes or being in front of a computer. Um, so, again, when these kids don't pay attention, get bad grades, it's ADHD. Give them some medicine. You know, I, I don't want to generalize, but, you know, I guess... Do, do you see things like that where you're saying, oh, gosh, if I could, you know, if I had my way, I'd say, hey, get this kid involved in these activities, oh, yeah. you know, and uh, and you'll see them blossom. Yes, absolutely. For me, when it comes to medication, I really think that, it, you know, let's let's just say, well, I'm sorry, let me backtrack. When it comes to even thinking about, like, do they have do we need medication? I really want to make sure that there's nothing else like in your example. So two things are, is, do we have the right diagnosis? Like, is it really ADHD or are there other comorbidities or other things that are going along with it? There's so many things that mimic ADHD too. And I do want to say, I agree too. It is a real diagnosis and 
But that's what brings up some of the controversy is, you know, people are wondering, is it psychological, neurological or behavioral? And it's probably a little bit of everything, I think. And so when I think about medication, I really think about, well, what what are the goals? So I always have five goals in mind that I share with patients that are just simple so that everyone can understand. And then we figure out how do we meet those goals? So are they achieving academically? Are, how do we decrease disruptive behavior if it's present? Self-esteem, making friends and being social. And then the other goal is also what I call um, self-care independence. And that goes along with ADHD. Like, are they losing things? Are they forgetting things? Are they turning in their homework? Um, are they able to, if mom says, go brush your teeth and put your PJs on, can they follow those directions, for example? And Then what I do is I find if there's one of those five areas that we really need to target, then maybe behavioral, taking a more behavioral response is going to be the way to go than opposed to intervening with medication. And I think the studies have definitely shown, much like a lot of psychological issues, that medication and behavior modification tends to be the, has the greater outcome. But I, I think, too, it depends on the age of the child. I get a lot of parents that come in, and they're under six years of age. And I have a, I really try in those situations to say, let's work on behavior modification and, and what we can do without medication. You know, I think you said it's so interesting, those five points, something that really rang a bell for me. Um, was that I think self-esteem is so important and I think way overlooked. And sometimes a lot of times the kids obviously don't get it from their parents or they don't get it from a teacher. So they, you know, obviously their peers, you, know, you can't expect that. But um, it was funny, I was thinking about this, this very famous marketing uh, guru, Gary Vaynerchuk. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard of him. He's a really interesting guy. He's He became a multimillionaire himself, terrible at school. He used to get Ds and Fs, whatever. And what I, you know, he's written a couple of best-selling books for, on business, and uh, he talks about how he's successful, but he's so, so interesting. He goes, his mom still always thought he was the greatest. You know, she, you know, he got bad grades. I think it was his mom and his grandma, especially. They were like, you know what, you are going to be a success. You know, this is just a temporary thing about school. You know, school's not for you, but, you know, and I think that, you know, coming from a teacher, which is really important, coming from a a pediatrician even, you know, the doctor that sees them. And of course, if it's possible from the parent, you know, because I know sometimes kids say, oh, my parent has to love me, you know, and they, but they don't, unfortunately, you know. But I think that esteem, self-esteem part is, is really huge. And we'd have a lot more productive, happy adults if they had gotten that, you know, good dosing of self-esteem, you know, growing up. There's no doubt. And I even talk about whether, and, and you know, ADHD has to show impairment in two different settings. And so I talk to them about, you know, self-esteem because sometimes they're like, oh, they're fine. And I said, well, they might be, but other things too, if they're constantly being redirected, if they're constantly being right. told you haven't turned in your homework or they're getting Fs because of their diagnosis and Having ADHD does not mean that you're not 
high functioning or smart, you know, very intelligent people have ADHD. I mean, there, you could certainly have, well, and you could even have a learning disorder and ADHD and still be. And you could be a great student. I mean, I knew people in medical school that had it. They were phenomenal students. I I think their doctor, you know, their medical clinical skills could have been better because they were just always so hyper-focused. But, uh-huh. you know, when it came to some, you know, obviously there's probably those two ranges, some that are very poor students and some that are amazing students because they're just so focused. Um, yes, I tell kids all the time, I say, ADHD is your superpower. Let's yeah. let's really try to, what the, the yeah, the traits that you have, let's use utilize those. But that, you know, these kids come in and you're so right. Every, if there is one thing I've learned from, COVID and just all like different styles of learning and and cetera is every child, every person learns differently. And yeah. it's, uh, I wish everybody could be on an IEP really. Mm. What do you think about, you know, really the, the epidemic in a sense too of anxiety and depression, social media, do you think is a big thing? Do you think any other major factors? I mean, maybe, you know, it's interesting. I always sometimes think too that, you know, unfortunately the disintegration of like that, whatever you want to call it, the nuclear family, you know, or even extended family, you know, where, you know, my, my, par- you know, parents always talk about, especially my mom, you know, she grew up with aunts and uncles, everybody on the block, you know, so if your mother was busy doing something, your aunt watched you and your cousins were all there. And I, I think people just didn't feel as like, oh gosh, you know, my mom's divorced. And uh, she's sick or has to go something for business, you know, I'm by myself or there's a stranger watching me. I, I don't know. It's just, you know, obviously it's also, again, such a bigger issue, it seems, than it was 20, 30 years ago, maybe when you, when you started practice, right? Yes. I mean, social isolation was a, a big thing in these kids because it's such a huge part of their development. Mm-hmm. And this goes from the gamut of, honestly, newborns all the way up to 18 and, and just how it affected the kids. And my goal has always been, you know, let's get them off their seat, you know, off their butt, so to speak, and, and on their feet. And I think that what we've seen from the pandemic is definitely an increased use in media, but even before the pandemic, and this is, this is another thing that really got me started to reach out to communities and talk when Facebook even first came out, which has been a while, I I had this passion about um, what we can do to help with cyberbullying, for example. Mm-hmm. But there's so many things. I mean, it affects kids' body image. You know, back in the day, all I had to worry about was looking at a teen mag- magazine mm-hmm. and wishing I looked like these models. Now right. it's all over, you know, it's right. just in their face. And there's just, there's so much that kids have to deal with these days. I was talking to a mom the other day and the teenager really feels like she needs help with her anxiety. And the mom is literally telling me in the office, she said, you know, we never went on medications or saw therapists. We just sucked it up, you know, um, lack of a better term. That's yeah. And I yeah. quote, but, um, and so it's really hard then to try to explain to her, but it's so different now. Right. And why suffer? Parents, yeah, and parents aren't even equipped. You know, we don't. You know, sometimes I'll say, "Oh, you know, your parents have been through it; they understand." I can't, I can't say that anymore. Mm. And that's where I think too the disconnect is between parents and uh, and teenagers and and adolescents specifically. 
because it is so different the way that that they were raised and um interesting it's almost alien i know that sounds really dramatic but no, it's it is. true yeah yeah there is a big divide and what what all the technology has done what about also the you know as they refer to the obesity epidemic do you think it has a lot to do with kids not moving as much or with exercise because sometimes it's so funny so many kids are on sports teams and this and that other kids you know, became couch potatoes at a very young age, you know, just watching TV, you know, watching their, their iPads and et cetera. And, or do you think it's more the food? I mean, I, I always say, you know, that you have to pay extra not to be poisoned because they put sugar and everything to so many processed foods. So where does that discussion start with the parents, with the kids, with both? How do you approach that? Yes, that's an excellent question. So I, I'm involved in a program through the Ohio Academy of Pediatrics here, and uh, it's called Parenting in Mealtime and Playtime. So I'm, I, I really, I'm, it's like a teach the, the provider program. So I'm teaching other pediatricians how to start at that zero to five age and about media limits and exercise activities and also how to teach these kids to eat. And you were talking about, you know, with your experience with allergies, it, you know, we're seeing more and more of that in the younger age group and how it's affecting their bodies. But then, you know, what do you do with the families that have already created bad habits? And that's, that's difficult because, and definitely the pandemic has exacerbated all of this because kids are spending more time, you know, uh, sedentary than they were before. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so, and you're right, the community aspect of it too. But I think it really all comes down to just, I try to use motivational interviewing and really, again, get know their story so that we can make actual changes in their health and their activity and their nutrition um, that's doable. Because I could sit there all day and tell them, oh, do this, do this, do this. But if they can't, if they don't have access and they don't have the time or the um, the ability, they're not going to do it. So my approach is always I need to know their story and empathize and then work with that to make small changes um, I heard once if if you make one small change every day, think about what a, in a year how many yeah. how much you've changed. Yeah, so you let's say about compound interest, <laughs> it blows people mm-hmm. away when you realize you put away a couple of dollars. Um, so as we're kind of wrapping up, Doctor Sarah, what are you hoping parents and children get from listening to your podcast? I really want my my families to understand that, look, it's, it's not easy, but it doesn't have to be so hard. And you don't have to be so hard on yourself. And that I try to show as much empathy as I possibly can, and meet them where they're at. And I almost like giving them permission to not be okay, or not to be that perfect parent, because perfection is, is really, unreasonable it's it's unattainable but we can we can be better and so that's what i'm trying to do with families is let's just do it better Mm. well dr sarah i think your patients your pediatric patients your parents are really lucky to have a pediatrician like yourself you know to care for them and uh i want to thank you for taking time to come on the podcast where can listeners go to find out more about your work and your podcast 
I would say if you if you go to the podcast, um, you know, anywhere, wherever you listen to your shows, for example, I have all the information in my show notes and in my profile and uh, link to a website as well. And that's probably the best way to find me at, at Growing Up with Dr. Sarah. Great. All right. Well, again, thank you once again. And uh, I hope for my listeners, if you've really enjoyed this episode, that you'll leave a review. It really helps us a lot. Get the word out and uh, stay tuned till next time.